0: ben jarofsky show for friday april 14th starts now on today's show making her triumphant return to oh what a week the great rachel hinton the ben jarofsky show is brought to you in part by seiu healthcare illinois indiana the chicago federation of labor the chicago teachers union and chicago reader chicagoreader.com for everything there is to know in the city of chicago where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and so much more. Columns from Ben Jorofsky and so many other great reader writers. You've got to check it out. And if you like Ben Jorofsky and you want to see more, just head to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jorofsky. That's J-O-R-A, V is in victory, S-K-Y.
1: Hello again, everybody. Ben Jorofsky here. Oh, what a week Friday it is. Rachel Hinton is joining me. Always a fun to talk politics with Rachel Hinton. Uh, Before we bring Rachel on uh, and pick her brain about all the political issues of the day or at least of the week, I got to give a shout out to another reporter, the great Gregory Pratt. and I uh, mean that when I say that I've gone on and on many times about how I think, you know, in general, let me back up. In general, as a boomer, I'm always teasing millennials like your music sucks, not nearly as good as our music. Your movies are okay, but our movies are way better. Although I did see Air last night and thoroughly enjoyed it. It's like a promo for Nike. I can't believe they got away with that. It's a total promo for Nike. But that's not, I I didn't mean to go on that tangent. Uh, Shout out to all the young reporters out there. I think your generation just destroys my generation. I must make this concession. Just the kind of way you've blown up just all the conventions of journalism that I really feel hampered uh, journalism across the board, but mainly in Chicago. I know it so well in Chicago because I've been living here since 81 and reading the newspapers. Uh, And it's just that in the old days, in the 80s and 90s, I think journalism in the pockets of machine uh, politicians in this town, and they wouldn't admit it and I just see them breaking loose with this generation. And what am I leading up to? Gregory Pratt scoop. You know, he's the FOIA king of Mayor Lori Lightfoot's uh, texts. <laughs> hey, Greg, someone's got to do it. Uh, so he persistently and consistently and tenaciously uh, goes after the texts of Lori Lightfoot and he files them a Freedom of Information Act requests for them. Uh, We'll get into a conversation I know with Rachel on this. FOIA, in my humble opinion, uh, is essentially uh, the whole thing is a canard. Uh, It's used by government entities. This is my opinion uh, to keep uh, the public uh, from seeing the documents that they should see anyway. So they make you just jump through these hoops. And uh, to be a really effective reporter on a a beat, you just have to constantly pester them with FOIA requests. Uh, I feel it's unfortunate that you have to do it. I feel like it's an unnecessary game uh, that government plays. I feel it's a way of shielding them again uh, and keeping the public from seeing things that the public should see. But that's the rules of the game and you have to play by them if you're a reporter. And so Gregory Perez has just been going after Lori Lightfoot's uh, texts for, I forget how many years now. Well, she's been in office for four years. I don't know how long he's been doing it. Uh, but the one that dropped yesterday, the article that dropped yesterday, I think it was, was his, his story about the text between Lori Lightfoot and Cook County State's attorney, uh, Kim Fox. Uh, and it has to do the way with uh, Lori Lightfoot played the crime game. Uh, and this is a very serious issue uh, beyond me making fun of the FOIA process because uh, Chicago, yes, struggles with a crime problem. Duh. It always has and it always will, I think, uh, until we've addressed the social uh Causes of crime in some meaningful fashion. Uh, and so, but Chicago has always had the crime problem. So, politically speaking, there's always the blame shifting. Who is blamed for it? Uh, and post uh, George Floyd murder, Lloyd Lightfoot has more often than not blamed either the uh, chief judge of the Cook County court system, Timothy Evans. The judges are supposedly lenient, uh, she claims, and letting uh, dangerous offenders out, or Kim Fox. Cook County state's attorney. And she doesn't want to go too far in blaming Kim Fox because Kim Fox and Lori Lightfoot sort of share the same constituency. And so she doesn't want to offend like that. It was a very delicate tightrope. She was walking. Lori Lightfoot was, uh, in fact, Greg Pratt points this out in the story, uh, when Lori Lightfoot was running for reelection in this last campaign, uh, when she was in front of black audiences, she would praise Kim Fox. And she when she was in front of white audiences, she would criticize Kim Fox. And the reigning assumption is that Chicago is so segregated, nobody will ever know, no black person will ever know what a politician tells a white audience and no white person will ever know what a black she's telling a black audience. Hey, what are, the, what are the many byproducts of segregation in Chicago? It enables... Uh, Politicians to talk out of two sides of their mouth, unless there's an inquiring reporter in the room, uh, dutifully taking notes, and then keeping track of what the politician says to the black audience and what the politician says to the white audience. Um, and um, in his story, uh, he tracks down the texts. He did the FOIA first to Lori Lightfoot, Greg Pratt did, and then she just she just released selective texts. And when he called Kim Fox for comment. She's like, I'll release all the text. So it's like filled in the gaps. And what we saw, there's just a conversation. And in that conversation, Lori Lightfoot was basically essentially uh, just sort of repeating her talking points on this issue to Kim Fox, uh, as though Kim Fox was like a reporter who had to dutifully just take it down. And uh, pretty interesting little thing. Kim Fox called her out. To put it mildly, uh, the opening line is, uh, this is Kim Fox taking offense at what Lori Leifert wrote. She writes, and I quote, I'm assuming they misquoted you Given we don't give certificates, judges do. She's talking about that, the controversial comment uh, that Lori Lightfoot made uh, that the state's attorney's office is passing out certificates like they're candy, letting out dangerous offenders. If, if, if in fact, you said this, I remain disappointed that you continue to say things that aren't true. Wow. Just telling it like it is in a text. And here comes Lori Lightfoot right back. And I just, this made me laugh out loud. Him I apologize for my inartful words, which were not accurately captured. (laughs) Once again, throwing the press corps under the bus. You know they were accurately, you think think they were just going to make it up? (laughs) You think she, well, you didn't quote me right. It's like Charles Barkley claiming he was misquoted in his autobiography. (laughs) You think a reporter's just going to make up something you say? And you can't just prove that reporter wrong? You think a reporter is going to continue to have his or her job? If, they, if like, you gave a public comment and they just said, no, they just made stuff up? She still has to say, uh, they were not accurately captured. And yet, at the same time, they're inartful. I don't know which one or the other. You either were inartful in the things you said or you didn't say the things they said you said. Uh, but nonetheless, we're too casual and flippant given the serious matter of the topic, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I applaud Greg Pratt. We live in a very strange times, ladies and gentlemen, where uh, to find out what's going on in government, we have to uh, file FOIA requests to get the texts. These used to be emailed. I remember uh, Mick Dunkey was an expert at filing FOIAs for emails. Uh, and uh, for, I think, Mayor Rahm's office. Uh, so now we're into texts. And pretty soon they're just going to learn not to text anything. <laughs> anyway, that's just uh, my, my opening thoughts. Rachel Hinton, your thoughts on this.
2: Yeah, uh, Pratt also does emails. Uh, occasionally he'll tweet out email exchanges uh, between Lightfoot and various aldermen, alder uh, persons. Um, I think one of the more interesting ones I saw recently was after the election, this most recent election, multiple people who did not, uh, you know, endorse her for reelection, like Alderman Lee out on the 11th ward, I want to say, you know, reached out to her, texted her saying like, oh, thanks for giving me a shot you know good luck and whatever comes next so so Pratt's on it Pratt's on the emails he's on the texts uh nobody is safe you'd think that they'd maybe go the Mike Madigan route and not keep their own cell phone with them <laughs> not send their own text but um it seems like Lightfoot is is a little too verbose especially through the text messages and emails and whatnot um it, it's also crazy to me that in the story he has to note that uh the mayor's office only gave him a select amount of those emails and he had to go to the state's attorney's office to get the rest of them. And then initially, you know, the mayor's office didn't want to comment or didn't respond to him. He follows up, they say no comment. And then eventually they say it was a production error. Um, so, I mean, and, and he noted this in a, in a text or not a text, a tweet, a lot of unforced errors. Like you could just be honest. You could just be upfront. Um, you could release all of the texts. I, d- I don't know foil ob like the back of my hand, but I'm pretty sure there's nothing barring them from doing that. Um, uh, so, I mean, going out on the, the same wave that you went on, went in on it seems in some ways, um, very interesting though.
1: Yeah. I, um, I, I'm going to say this. I, I would kind of leaving Lori Lightfoot alone, uh, Rachel since, she lost. She's moving on. We're transitioning uh, to the Brandon Johnson uh, regime for a while. We didn't know if it was Brandon or Paul Vallis. So it was like Lori was almost yesterday's news. Uh, But it was this very significant four-year period in Chicago history, the Lightfoot reign, and uh, we're just sort of dissecting it and just coming to terms with it. Uh, But one point must be made in terms of Lori Lightfoot's reign, and you used a phrase that I use all the time on the show, unforced errors, uh, unforced errors. The biggest one of her reign was uh, her snubbing Willie Wilson, in my humble opinion. We say this on the show all the time. Total unforced error, completely unnecessary. Had she treated Willie Wilson with the respect he felt he deserved and in, the, uh, in the, starting in 2019 after she was elected, she'd probably be uh, reelected in my humble opinion, because I don't believe he would have run. And she would have captured his vote and made the runoff. Uh, But this one is like, is it unforced error or is it just weird, passive-aggressive behavior? And one thing I've noticed in the last month uh, since she lost is that Lori Lightfoot has just basically been one way or another giving the middle finger to the press corps. Uh, and I mean part of me understands it Rachel you know it's just to have to put up with all these nettlesome reporters with their questions day after day although that does kind of come with the job uh and then you know maybe in the back of her mind she feels that she was unfairly treated by them who knows I, I don't want to read her mind I can't but it just seems like since the end of uh since she lost No, no interviews. Remember that that's something else I've learned from uh, Greg Pratt's uh, tweets that she won't do interviews, which is a tradition that mayors have when they leave office. Um, She's kind of gone sort of semi in hiding uh, and then just routine requests like this. um, The the game she plays, you know, only selective releasing the the um, the texts that Greg Pratt asked for and then saying what was the word she blamed it on production errors <laughs> yeah. that's sort of like we, we start you know she blamed the reporters for uh, misquoting her even though she said it uh it was in artful comments okay. um what are your thoughts about this uh lori lightfoot's uh, behavior as she uh walks out of office? Is it, is it consistent with how uh she ruled in her four years
2: i think so i think that it, it tracks she would definitely go after reporters who ask questions that she didn't like, um, in press conferences, post city council press conferences and say like, Oh, that's a, that's a, you know, not stupid question, but like she she would get mad at people. Um, and I think another example of that maybe the most well-known or the one that comes to mind first is, you know, the FOP clown comment she made. She's always kind of making comments. If you are against her, you know, there's no way to get Back in with her. There are no inroads. It's just she immediately doesn't like you, is how it seems. Um, So I I think it it tracks that she isn't doing exit interviews. Um, She isn't really doing any sit down interviews right now with media in any way. Um, I think there was maybe one instance recently, maybe it was post like the most recent city council meeting where she did take a couple questions, but. I mean, when I heard about that i I was surprised. I kind of expect her to go radio silent. um and i I think it makes sense, given what we know about her that you know since she didn't she's not going out on her own terms, she's kind of creating her own terms um and and not going to take any questions. She's not going to deal with the people who've been getting on her nerves for like the past four years.
1: She is so sick and tired of them. she is moving on, and as she moves on, there's a new team moving in the Brandon Johnson team. Uh, we've been talking, obviously, for the last week uh, about uh, Brandon Johnson's success, it, dissecting it, analyzing it. I got us uh, the interview I want to promote dropping tomorrow with Jason Lee, who's the campaign manager, and he really breaks it down, uh, the strategies that they were following. So I urge everybody to check that out. Uh, but he's assembling his transition team. I know you have some thoughts about that. Rachel, take it away.
2: Yeah, Jessica Angus uh, is the main one. Uh, Crane's Justin Lawrence over there, I just want to give him a shout out, did a great profile on her. She's going to be the chief of his transition team. She comes from SEIU Healthcare, which has been with Johnson, I want to say, since day one of him really jumping into this battle uh, for the fifth floor. Uh, She brings a lot of know how. She's worked, or rather, the the union has worked on a lot of pivotal progressive issues like uh, getting a a $15 minimum wage, uh, the Fair Work Week Ordinance. Uh, people quoted in Lawrence's story, uh, like Bob Ryder, who is uh, the head of the Chicago Federation of Labor, as well as Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who's known for you know his progressive um, ideologies up in the 35th Ward, all saying her praises. Um, so she's like the main standout person that I would think of. Uh, there's, you know, a couple other people, Jason Lee, who's going to be on here, who, who is the podcast is already recorded, but you'll listen to it soon. Um, he was his, his campaign manager. He's now an advisor. Uh, there's a guy from grassroots collaborative. There's also a, a Madigan, former Madigan staffer, which I thought was interesting. Um, makes me wonder like how far away from the machine can you get? Like how many degrees of separation can there be? Um, I don't, it's not that. I mean, Chicago is like the biggest small town. So in some ways it makes sense that you have somebody who's worked for Madigan. Um, but I, I do question that, uh, the optics of that given, you know, the Comet Four trials going on probably as we speak right now.
1: Yeah. I uh and uh the Misha Patel, shout out Amisha. Uh, grassroots collaborative. Uh, she is on the uh, the transition team as well. I, I noted that in an earlier show, I had a smile. I mean, she is regular uh, on the show and she is a lefty, uh, true and dear. Uh, and as I watch this process uh, play out, I'm wondering how will, will they move to the right, uh, to the center, which would be for them moving to the right. Uh, And there's a tradition in Chicago, you know, uh, centrists uh, have prevailed in the elections pretty much since in this century. (laughs) Uh, Lori Lightfoot, despite what she may have said in the campaign, is clearly a a Democratic centrist. We haven't had a real lefty in the city since Harold Washington back in the 80s. And so centrists are already in the center, so they don't really feel any kind of compelling need to move anywhere they stay where they are uh, and uh, if anything they may move a little right uh, from time to time. I'm really wondering will people who ran whose whole careers fit on the progressive sides of things uh, will they um, will they, like feel compelled to sh- to prove to the business community, to the corporate world in the city, uh, to the the voters who did not vote for them uh, that they could play sort of like if like an even handed way, and which finds them drifting or moving uh, to the right, even if it upsets their uh, uh, their constituents. What's your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, I think that'll be interesting. I mean, we saw Lightfoot. And whether that's because of just who she is or because of the political kind of environment that she faced, move away from many of the things she promised to do, many of the progressive reform kind of things she she promised to do on the campaign trail. Um, I, I mean, that's one of the big questions I have is, okay, you ran on a progressive platform, but how much of that can you actually get done without scaring off the business people, without scaring, I don't know, people that you need. To have relationships with, um, I, I think you know this thing with the Shot Spotter contract. It was revealed earlier this week by the Sun Time, Shout out to them um, that the Shot Spotter contract was going to be extended, um, and you know Mayor-elect Johnson said that there are better ways to spend that money, but didn't say that he would necessarily end that contract. Um, even though he promised, I want to say on the campaign trail um, that. That he would do that and that's a much of that stuff can be found on block club um so I, i'm curious about that i'm curious to see how, how he's going to handle ShotSpotter, spotter how he's going to handle policing relationships with police um but i i think you know the thing with his like uh real estate transfer tax i'm pretty sure that has to go through the general assembly i don't think pritzker's on board with that there was something that happened where at their meeting a week two weeks ago um, where Pritzker didn't necessarily voice support for that. So, so I think we're going to see him have to massage some of those things, but I don't know that we're going to see him go center left. Um, I, I think given the people who helped bring him into office, I think if he did that, he might be out also in four years.
1: So, Yeah, no, it, uh, uh, I, the difference I draw between Johnson and Lori Lightfoot on progressive issues uh, is that and this is me speaking, If Lori Lightfoot was late to the party on these issues. There was nothing in Lori's background. This is a conversation I had with so many of my lefty friends, uh, Rachel, when they chided me for having voted for Lori Lightfoot. There was nothing in... They gave me such grief. Uh, there was... <laughs> I'm still getting grief from him. But there was nothing in Lori Lightfoot's background to uh, even remotely suggest... That this was these progressive values were in her heart. She was an insider corporate lawyer. Uh, She worked for the daily administration. She was on the police board. She had that stone face that she would give not not reveal a great poker face. It really irritated a lot of activists who would be coming before the police board and to uh, plead the cause on behalf of somebody who had been shot or killed or what have you. And she would just have that face. And she would, and she said, well, I have to do this because this is a a judiciary uh, board and I'm not supposed to show any kind of bias. I remember that was her explanation when the question was asked to her at the hideout when McDumkey and I had her on. Uh, So, but there was nothing in her background to indicate that she was going to adhere to her progressive values. It had to be you, the voter had to sort of willfully be- like give put aside your skepticism. Yeah. Which is what I did. <laughs> I like put, well, she's told me this, so you know.
2: Might as well believe it, huh?
1: Might as well believe it. <laughs> and then Big Dumkey would make fun of me, Rachel. You <laughs> can't believe her. What are you talking about? Um, whereas Brandon Johnson, this is his career. Yeah. This is, I mean, this.
2: He's an organizer. Yeah, and I think with Lightfoot, you know, at, at least you were in good company. You and, and many other chicago Chicagoans <laughs> were in good company. It wasn't like you voted for someone who, you know, no one else voted for, and somehow they made it into the the office. You know, like every everyone voted. A lot of people voted for her. She became our mayor, and then we all realized slowly but surely, or maybe not even that slowly progressives who were you know trying to ring the alarm not slowly at all that oh this was this was a farce this was not true um i do think with johnson you know pointing to this being his career yeah i i that's what makes me question whether or not he will move more toward the right i think that you know th- these values that he has are ingrained by this point in time i don't think it's something some sort of code he's just putting on it, it's been with him um but I mean, again, politics is all about relationships, sometimes strange relationships, strange bedfellows. And you have to be able to make those connections. Um, I, I think he'll do that. I think he'll try to do that. But I think, you know, it remains to be seen what the result will be.
1: Uh, I also have to say this, uh, that for once in my life, I- I'm gonna use you as my therapist, Rachel. It's not a job you signed up for. but I just wanted to be like with the rest of the people in Chicago. You know, I've like always been on the wrong side. I mean the losing side. I thought it was the right side, but the losing. I'm like, I'm gonna go with the people of Chicago and seventy five percent to your point, I believe it was seventy five percent of the vote she got. Just let's just think about that. Lori Lightfoot got seventy five percent of the vote, and she ended up. In in her race against Perquico, and she ended up being unable to. I think what did she get? Sixteen percent in the in the last election. I but just off the top of my head, just a remarkable downturn. Uh, and um, so anyway, in 2019, I said, just for once, I want to be on the side that's winning. <laughs> and boy, did I regret it! All yeah. right, uh, <laughs> that'll teach me a lesson. <laughs> uh, I want to uh, move on to another topic that's on my mind uh, and uh, get your thoughts about this. Uh, As we speak, you already alluded to it, there's the so-called Michael Madigan 4 trial uh, going on here in the city of Chicago. Uh, And it's sort of the forerunner, I think, of the Madigan trial itself. Uh, Michael Joseph Madigan, former House Speaker, former Chairman of the Democratic Party, former uh, hugely powerful political force in the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois, Uh, and uh, Commonwealth Edison admitted uh, that uh, they paid off, essentially paid off Madigan's Allies and put him on the payroll in order to get his support uh, for various legislation that would help them uh, and get rate hikes, and stuff, et cetera, and so forth. So, uh, four of Madigan's cohorts are on trial uh, right now, and that testimony uh, is exposing some of the like the things we all already knew, Rachel, but really hadn't come out into the public's eye so much from the uh, people who were in the belly of the beast of how the Madigan machine operated. It was top down. Uh, Madigan uh, knew what everybody was up to. Uh, he demanded like uh, almost like daily reports on how many doors they knocked on and uh, how many voters they greeted. Uh, he kept track of the turnout that each precinct uh, captain got, the vote that they got. Uh, It was very precise, to put it uh, mildly. Uh, People got their jobs uh, through their allegiance to Madigan, and they were expected to produce. Classic Chicago political machine in operation. Uh, On the other hand, uh, just within the last two weeks, we've seen sort of a new political uh, operation emerge, and that is the one from the left which uh, more or less is headed by the Chicago Teachers Union, United Working Families, uh, and uh, with some of the unions you already mentioned, SEIU Healthcare. Uh, And they dispatched uh, into the streets of Chicago hundreds of door knockers. Uh, And uh, in the aftermath, uh, the losers of this election, the supporters of uh, Paul Vallis, have been calling CTU the new machine. As though they just completely inherited. <laughs> this just poor losers. <laughs> we lost to a machine. Oh, you guys man. had more money, than they did. So I'd love to get your thoughts about contrasting uh, the Madigan operation that we're seeing uh, discussed uh, at the trial of the Madigan Four, and your thoughts about uh, the operation that Brandon Johnson and CTU uh, and United Working Families put together. That enabled Brandon to prevail. Go ahead.
2: I think that it's ultimately about who's at the center, who benefits from all of this. And what we're seeing from the ComEd trial is that I think in multiple testimonies, the thing Madigan cared about most was remaining speaker. He cared about himself. And so he dispatched people who worked well with him, who kissed the ring, who you know, put in their time. He gave them cushy no-show jobs or like helped a gigantic company push legislation through um, that ultimately would be good for their bottom line. I think with, you know, calling CTU and United Working Families like a new kind of machine you know, I, I think yes and no. I think that that's progressive politics at work. I think that's grassroots um, politics and having a good grassroots organization come out and, and do that work, do that job. And ultimately, like, sure, some of those people are going to get jobs. Like, that's that's just how it works. That's politics. But I don't know that I'd call them maybe a machine or maybe, maybe they are a machine and maybe I'm wrong. But I, I think that they need to win a little bit more to be called a machine. And I'm trying to think about who they endorsed for the city council and the names aren't coming to mind right now, but I mean, even the city council is going to be more left-leaning. So maybe that helps with their status as a machine, but right now it more so to me seems like this is a good ground game. They understand politics, they understand demographics, they understand what people need in the city. And so that's what they're appealing to. And you know, many of the people at the top, have that lived experience to say, "I understand what this is like, so I'm going to try to do this." And that again comes out in their ground game and and, and who they support and things of that sort.
1: Yeah, I. Thoughts? Go ahead. I cut you off. Go ahead. No. What are your thoughts. Um, yeah. No. I. Um. I. I feel it's not a. a app comparison. Uh, listen. They're organized. They're disciplined. They're strategic. They're smart. Now, why is since when is that? Uh, are things you should be ashamed of? You get what I'm saying, and so that's why I say it's just uh, sa- sour grapes from a losing team. Vallis got uh, I want to say over ninety percent of the vote uh, in some precincts uh, on the nineteen in the nineteenth ward of Mount Greenwood, and uh, there were signs everywhere throughout that neighborhood. So isn't that a machine? They're disciplined, they're focused, they're strategic, they got mm-hmm. their supporters, they got their people to come out to vote. How is that not a... By the way, Vallis got, this blew my mind, Rachel, when I saw this, I haven't commented on this much. Vallis mm-hmm. got over 80% of the vote, I wanna say, in the 13th Ward, which is Michael Madigan's home ward, Marty mm-hmm. Quinn's ward, Alderman Marty Quinn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I'm like, you get over 80% of the vote, there's something going on there. Uh, Very machine-like. And um, so I feel as though it's an attempt by the Republican Party uh, and um, sort of corporate Chicago to malign the left. And they very successfully maligned Madigan. They turned him into the biggest boogeyman in the state of Illinois. We've talked about this. We talked about this at the hideout when you were at the hideout where you're breaking down. Uh, with Tina's Fondellas uh, yeah. and um, and how uh, Madigan was effectively turned into a boogeyman. They spent a lot of money, uh, you know, uh, just vilifying him. And uh, so now they just want to apply that Madigan label to the CTU and United working families uh, just because they realize that they're going to be the opponents that they're going to have to deal with over the next, I don't know how many years and I don't know if it's an app, listen, politics, you know, all is fair in politics. You just, that's, just with not, it. you just got to deal with it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it, but I just think as like a, like a social scientist, you know what I mean? Like an objective political scientist analyzing it. I just don't think they're apt uh, comparisons. You know, I, I could argue like, they're going to get, every lefty is going to get mad at me. Like what Trump had in Mich- Michigan where he got uh white working class people who were traditionally Democrat to vote great numbers for him. Is that a machine? You know, how is, how is that? How is that not a machine? I don't know. That's kind of how I view it. What's your thoughts?
2: Yeah. I guess I wonder how we define machine nowadays. Like, is it, the machine of like the first daily doesn't exist anymore. You know, like you, you don't get to collect all the rings and you don't get to be the mayor and the, you know, Cook County, uh, uh, the chair of the Democratic Party. Uh, and and so it looks different. And so I think when we think of machine politics or when we try to put all put different groups into that box, it doesn't fit exactly right because politics have had to change or you see like the progressives come around and they do things a little bit differently or maybe the right, the center, center left does things a little bit differently. And so I I just don't know. I I agree with you that it's not an apt comparison, but part of me is like, give give it five years or give it four years. And like, will it be an apt comparison? Like we have to see maybe what CTU does with that power. I think once you get power, what you do with it, can be, you know, indicative of whether or not you have a machine and whether or not it's working more than like looking from the outside in and anticipating what's about to happen. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah. No, I, uh, I looking forward, going forward, I don't believe you're absolutely correct. The, the old daily machine, uh, that existed before the Shackman lawsuit and enabled, uh, daily to force payrollers to, uh, go door to door on behalf of his campaign was a very formidable political operation. Uh, That's through. You can't force payrollers to go door to door uh, unless you got them like the kind of gigs that, that Madigan allegedly got uh, his allies with Commonwealth Edison, which are contract deals. They're, they're, they're not Shackman exempt. They're not protected uh, uh, jobs. They're just raw patronage jobs. They're handouts. Uh, So Like, as I keep saying, um, a school teacher who goes door to door because he or she believes in Brandon Johnson or Rosanna Rodriguez or any Carlos Ramirez Rosa or any lefty alderman, uh, he or she won't lose their job if they don't get the results. That's a protected position. So there's a difference, I believe, between someone who's doing it because their job depends on it and someone who's doing it because they're a true believer. Uh, And um, so we may be seeing, (laughs) I'm I'm very skeptical about, I'm very nervous about saying this. We may be seeing true believers of the left. Finally, after all these years, uh, taking uh, control of city hall. All right, let's move on to the other big news of the week. I know it's on your mind. The convention, the Democrats chose Uh, Chicago over Atlanta to have their 2024 uh, convention. Joe Biden announced it just a few days, I think, after uh, Brandon Johnson was uh, elected. Do you think there's a uh, correlation between those two events, events—getting Chicago getting the uh, convention uh, and uh, Brandon Johnson being victorious, or do you think there's other factors at play?
2: Definitely other factors at play. Um, I'm, I'm, maybe that's part of it. Although I would assume that this has been in the works. They've probably done the, you know, the NCAA bracket of different cities and <laughs> eliminated them, you know, over time. Um, I was reading the um, Atlanta Journal-Constitution did a story about them losing the bid. And somebody in that story said, you know, Pritzker basically committed to bankrolling this. Uh, he would write a check of eighty million dollars. The DNC would have nothing, nothing to worry about. And you know that that sounds pretty appealing. You know, if I was going to put on some big event, and Pritzker said, "Hey, I'll cover it if you invite me," I'd do it. Uh, so I think that's probably the biggest thing, um, as well as you know, historically you know, the United Center, what they held it here in 1996, either 94 or 96, 96, um, 96. Uh, so there's already a history here the United Center, you know, there's hotels and whatnot around it. It's going to be great for the city, rebuilding the city. Also like we're the blue wall basically. Um, and I think acknowledging, supporting kind of, um, what's the word like rewarding us um for that rewarding illinois not me specifically um i think i think is also part of this
1: yeah the blue wall being wisconsin michigan uh and illinois illinois is pretty much uh, you, uh, a blue state you just you take pretty much out of the States. that's it it is a blue state uh rachel and i uh, and tina Fondales, we we did that breakdown uh it, Dems swept statewide. Republicans have no clue as to how to make statewide inroads uh, uh, into Illinois because they're so dedicated to the MAGA faction, the extreme faction, that they can't move to the center on issues like abortion, uh, which are very uh, key issues in the state of Illinois, key issues throughout the country. Uh, But Illinois, they, the Dems uh, strategically want to have what they call, like Rachel said, the blue wall, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, sort of just a formidable array of uh, electoral votes coming out of the Midwest. And, okay. uh, yeah, that if you add Pennsylvania, that mix. I don't think Trump, presuming Trump's the, uh, the nominee, maybe it's DeSantis, uh, can can prevail. You ha- the, the the Republicans have to crack that. They did that with Trump uh, in 2016 when they took Wisconsin and to Michigan. Uh, Biden took them back uh, in 2020. And uh, the the st- strategy is to have the convention here in Chicago uh, and then um, uh, use that as the, to build up support in these adjoining states. Sort of make them share the spotlight. Uh, do you see any? Any, uh, like, back problems with that, Uh, linking the Democratic Convention uh, to Chicago? Because Chicago's been played. You know, Darren Bailey called it a hellhole, and uh, people, the Republicans have been running against Chicago uh, for the last, I don't know, eight years. Do you you see any possible uh, problems with the, the Democrats using Chicago for their site?
2: I mean, it's possible, given, you know, crime. Um, I think also around that time, the Republicans are doing their national convention in Milwaukee, Um, so trying to like chip away at that blue wall. Obviously, Illinois is the most reliable member, but Wisconsin, given their state legislature, um, it could go either way. So, I I mean, I think that we'll see Republicans attack Chicago on crime. I think we'll see them attack Chicago on um, having a lefty mayor, even more left than the previous one, um, a lefty governor. Um, I I think that we'll see like the typical Republican talking points, Um, you know, whether or not that sticks. I mean, I think that that remains to be seen, especially like this is going to be late, mid to late August, I think August 19th to the 22nd. hot days you know crime could be pretty high at that time probably will be um so i'm sure that there's going to be something for them to use but i don't think that that'll necessarily matter to democrats i think what matters most is we need to keep the white house we need to you know keep the white house we need to get as many seats as possible um and i I think that's going to be the main focus for them
1: Were you surprised uh, that uh, crime wasn't more effective for Vallis in this election, the the law and order themes?
2: I was, yeah, Um, especially watching the returns come in. You know, like in the beginning of the night, he was he was up. And I thought, given everything that I've heard, the polls that I'd seen come out, I think WGN did a poll shortly before the election or maybe a week or two before that, like the top issue for voters was crime. And the guy talking the most about crime, especially like with a law and order approach was Paul Vallis. Um, so I'm, I'm interested, like w- what happened is basically my, my big question and looking at, you know, election results. Um, I do wonder if maybe people are seeing like, okay, that doesn't work. We should try something else. Let's try this other person who seems to like actually be committed to the things that they're saying on the campaign trail. Um, or if it's, you know, something else, I guess. But yeah, no, that was that was really surprising. Given well, our, even our other conversation we had on here, sorry. Uh,
1: and uh, so I just want to uh, give credit to another guest on the show, political strategist, Anthony Jackson I was on the show yesterday. Uh, and the point he made right off the top is, and I'm doing my best to paraphrase him, black people still live in the city of Chicago and they really? vote. Yeah. And guess what? Their votes count too. Uh, And um, that was, Brandon Johnson's victory was a victory that he really owes to the black people of the city of Chicago, 80% of the vote uh, at least. And Valis just couldn't top that. Uh, And uh, so clearly, and this is the point that Anthony made, and this is the point that Jason Lee has made on the show, uh, and Brandon Johnson has made it as well, Stacey Davis-Gates, that law and order discussions in the black community are different than law and order discussions in the white community. It seems so obvious when I say it, but the power, the, the parties, particularly the Republican Party, treat it like it's one and the same, Rachel. and um, And so we saw that play out. Last Tuesday, a week ago Tuesday, we saw that play out. 80%, like I said, you go down to uh, the 19th Ward, that Western Avenue divide, Michael Girardi, shout out. Uh, on one side, on the west side of that divide, it's 90% for Vallis. On the east side of that divide, it's like 80% for Johnson. It's clear that there's a uh, two different worlds here. Uh, on attitudes of law and order. Do you agree?
2: Yeah, I would say it, it reminds me of what you were saying at the top of the show about, you know, you never know what's being said in the, the those other rooms, you know. Um, and I think that that goes for much of the city. You don't know what you don't know, um, especially if you don't surround yourself with or have friends who are black if you're white or white if you're black or even like other races as well. But you don't know how other people view these issues or the conversations they have around their dinner table around law and order and what does that mean um so i mean i think that 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 makes sense um and also i mean like thinking about that divide of like okay you've got 90 percent going for vallas and 80 percent going for johnson and like a street divides them you know that that gets at i think one of the uh, the themes or the undercurrents in the election of like, this is a tale of two cities. This is a fight for kind of, you know, the soul of the city. You've got the, and, and it is about race. Um, and there are a lot of people who didn't want to say that it was about race, but I think ultimately it is. And I think to ignore race is to ignore kind of some of the the big issues that the city is facing.
1: Absolutely agree with that. Uh, to ignore race, pretend like race doesn't exist. If it's yeah. such a fundamental part of Chicago, it's one of the first things that I learned when I moved here way, way back. When it it, it, it is just the most powerful issue in this city, it, uh, it, and you're right. People don't always talk about it openly. It may be tabletop conversation, uh, but it's there. It's a driving force. Uh, and, uh, we saw it at play here. Just, I mean, the other thing I noticed uh, when I took a look at the the demographics of the North side vote, follow me on this one, Rachel's kind of a deep dive into my brain, but as you move, uh, north from the Gold Coast, from the Gold Coast, to Riders park, Raina Johnson's vote keeps going up and up and up. And, um, I was like, wow, man, uh, the white people that, that, are, that are north of, let's say, um, Fullerton or Diversity are more liberal than white people who, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing at my own ignorance, uh, who live south of Diversity. And then, uh, again, shout out Anthony Jackson was on the show yesterday. He goes, But Ben, you have to realize there are a lot of other people besides white people who live on the north side north of Diversity. You got all kinds of Asian people, you got Hispanic people, and you got some black people. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot, yeah. About-, I forgot about that. <laughs> but the point is, is that, um, you know, if the city has any hope, as an old man looking back at it, Rachel, if the city has any hope, it is the fact uh, that we're a diverse city. And not everybody is plugged into that exactly white and black uh, mindset that so many uh, people in Chicago, particularly white people just plugged into it, you know, that knee jerk reaction. Um, and it and it's like, maybe you can help me with this. This is going to sound really naive when I ask the question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So why is it that an Asian person, Asian American Uh, who lives in the same neighborhood as a white person, which has the same crime issues for both of them. Mm -hmm. Okay, I mean, but living on the same block, Rachel, why is it that the Asian person somehow or other, when he he or she goes to vote, doesn't feel compelled to vote for the white law and order guy, (laughs) but will vote for the, the black progressive? But the white guy's like, "We gotta crack down on crime. What's going on there? Rachel? Help me out. I need help. understand. They live on the same block. They're dealing with the same issues. I need help. Rachel, help me out.
2: I think it's it's bias, you know. I think people more often than not don't question why they go for the law and order type or even really consider the other person or like why they don't consider the other person. And I think ultimately, if you boil that down, if you have like those deeper conversations of like, why Paul Vallis? Why is Paul Paul Vallis as an example? Like, why go with him and his approach to crime? Well, I think it's a good idea to bring back, you know, uh, uh, retired officers because, you know, there's not enough on the streets. Well, why do you want more police officers on the streets? Like, you don't think it's a good idea to maybe put that money toward job programs or youth programs or whatever. And you just continue to break that down. I, I think that, I, I would want to think most people want to reduce crime, not just have more cops on the streets. Um, but I, I think it's it's we're not drilling down, we're not or we're not having those conversations. Like the Asian neighbor isn't talking to the white neighbor, or vice versa, or the Latino neighbors and talking to the Black neighbor, or whatever. I think that we kind of stay in our little zones, and that's it. We talk to people who look like us and hope for the best, and we turn out to vote, and then it's a surprise to people like us who <laughs> watch this stuff all the time. <laughs> we're like, well, how did this happen? And it's like, well...
1: Oh. <laughs> no, I hear you. It's a surprise to people like us when the people who aren't like us get to vote, too. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Uh, yeah, no, I would be asking this question if guests for the next few weeks. Later. Is, it, is, oh, yeah. is, is yeah. It, it kind of gets at the heart of everything in the sh- city of Chicago when you think about it. You know, like th- this is a drastic. Like, take away the income is about the same, the education level is about the same, you know, the professionals. I, yeah. Yeah. You know,
2: I, I think it could come down to on like age or like socioeconomic status or whatever, like other things that like introduce some differences in a voting populace, but I think more often than not, it's like, as you grow up or as a person experiencing the city or the world or whatever, you like begin to make your own conclusions about it. And so your conclusion on why is crime so high can go in two different directions. It's either we need social services or we need more police officers. And I don't know that there's ever really like a middle ground between those yeah. two sides or that they try to find it. So.
1: All right. Uh, let's close by leaving the city of Chicago, sort we'll of. <laughs> uh, we'll probably come back in this conversation. Uh, as I told you before we in to show, I'm utterly obsessed uh, with what's going on in Tennessee. Uh, and I've been talking about it all week. And just to remind folks who are just dropping into the show for today's episode although I'm sure you all know what happened. Uh, the uh, There were two uh, state reps, two uh, black men, uh, uh, both named Justin, Justin Jones, Justin Pearson, who uh, spoke out vociferously on the issue of gun safety uh, in the aftermath of the shootings in Nashville. Six people killed at a, uh, a school in Nashville about a, two weeks ago. Absolutely abhorrent crime, should not be tolerated, my humble opinion is me speaking. Uh, and... Uh, they uh, were expelled. (laughs) Rachel, when that news hit me, I wrote about this. I'm like, expel? You could do that? You could just expel somebody? I mean, like, I put this, uh, I wrote this out in a newsletter. I'm like, like, I've, he been dealing with Chicago politics since 1981, real powerful mayors. I, f- I never remember any mayor expelling anybody. Thanks. Rob would always be mad at C- Carlos Ramirez-Rosas, never expelled him. You yeah. know what I'm saying? <laughs> D- Daley hated Bob Fioretti, never expelled <laughs> him. You know, Mike, even Michael Joseph Madigan, we just talk, most powerful sp- House Speaker. You know, he dealt with Mike Bose and all these Republicans yelling and screaming about him. He never expelled him. He, did, he okay, he did kick out Darren Bailey, uh, I mean, I don't even think the Republicans were comparing, complaining about that. But D.B., the big fella wasn't wearing a mask. And there were the rules where you have to wear a mask. As soon as he put the mask on, he came back. It's not like he said, you're not wearing a mask. I'm kicking you out of the legislature. I didn't even know you could do that. I, I, it, I'm like, Rachel, how clueless is the Republican Party? You know, I mean – the MAGA wing, which is pretty much the whole wing. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is how you're going to deal with a difference of agreement. You know, you go on and on about the woke mob and how you, people are snowflakes and they can't take criticism. You can't say anything anymore. And (laughs) and you turn right around, you don't like what these guys said or the way they said it, or they had a bullhorn for like three minutes. Uh, And so you just expel them. I mean, what do you think that's going to do about your so-called outreach to the black community? Like, what do you think black people, how do you think black people are going to respond to that? You just to pick these two guys. I know Herschel Walker may support it or Clarence Thomas may support it, but I think it's pretty obvious that they're not indicative of like (laughs) (laughs) many people in the black community. Help me out Rachel. I need help understanding like what the Republicans are up to here. Go ahead.
2: I think they wanted to make an example of these people, these state legislature legislators. And I don't think that they considered the consequences I, I, since this story has come out or since since they voted to expel them or even before that, since before the vote to expel there've been questions that have come up about Cameron Sexton, the speaker there. And like, he doesn't actually, he he may not actually live in the district where he should live to represent, uh, uh, he doesn't actually live in the district or or those are the allegations that have come up. And there've been other questions about um, him, his leadership, his residency. Um, It's also been interesting following this discussion because the last time people were expelled from the legislature, or for sexual assault, I think someone was like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't remember the other charge, but it was like sex, sexual assault or something. But again, I think that they mostly want to make an example of these people um, for not following some sort of quote unquote like rule of decorum or something of that sort. Um, I, I don't think that this has any substance other than they can and so they will because they have the numbers.
1: Yeah, they can. And so they will without consequence. Uh, so I've been very impressed uh, with the two state reps, uh, the two Justins, as I call them. I've been watching them uh, on their clips on social media and reading their uh, articles about them and reading their quotes. Uh, and um, I feel like we're heading into, I said this to you before we went on air, like a new age of black empowerment. And i uh, I see it here in Chicago with Brandon Johnson, uh, and now I'm seeing it there in Tennessee. Uh, and I don't know how far it'll go. I find it encouraging as an old lefty uh, that like the next generation that's coming up is not giving up and and both uh, Justin's down in Tennessee continually link their current day progressive values to things that their grandparents taught them. They go back to Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. And it's like, wow, they're, they're really plugged in. They know their history and you know, I'm really impressed. Uh, and I feel encouraged this is me speaking. I feel encouraged uh, by that. Um, this, uh, uh, the other hand, Uh, I have a uh, Jay Marie. I'm going to give her a shout out one more time. She's getting a lot of uh, uh, time on the show this week. She's a a listener, very thoughtful listener. And she challenges me on this point uh, that the black community is not as progressive as I think it is, or as maybe the Justins think it is uh, down in Tennessee, or maybe that Brandon Brandon Johnson uh, thinks it is. And she points out like Willie Wilson, who is a Republican and a Trump supporter got, what was it, 10% of the vote uh, in the first round and much higher than that in the Black Awards. So uh, then don't overestimate the uh, progressive roots of the Black community. What do you think? Do you think that um, uh, I'm right in that it's the Black community is progressive? Or do you think Jay Marie is right that it's not that progressive? Or is it somewhere in the middle? Go ahead, Rachel.
2: Yeah, I think you're both right and you're probably both wrong too, unfortunately. I mean, like, no group is a monolith. So, like, of course, you're gonna have people within that group that are saying that are gonna go for a Brandon Johnson or uh, the two Justins. Um,
0: and also you
2: have people who are church going. You know, you have the church going older black people who see Willie Wilson and they're like, I like what he stands for, I'm gonna vote for him. Or he's he speaks to what I want the city to look like. Or I really like the gas cards that he gives out, or like the gas giveaways he does. And so I think, you know, every demographic has a pie chart of people. Um, I, I would question, you know, maybe the percentages of like who's a progressive and who's more centrist or central left or center right or whatever. Um, I think right now it does maybe feel like when we look around, the country that there are more black progressive leaders so I think of LA I think of uh uh, here I think of Tennessee um but I, I do wonder if that's just like my own media appetite my own media diet is showing me those things um yeah I don't know it's a good question, though. I mean,
1: it is a great question. I'm watching it and I would add to the list of non-progressive black leaders, uh, New York, Eric Adams, uh, who uh, was elected mayor last year. Uh, so yeah, it's not across of the board and the Willie Wilson dynamic in the city of Chicago is unique, I would say, uh, uh, to uh, Chicago and to Willie Wilson. Uh, I believe there, um, uh, a lot of folks just, my humble opinion, voted for Willie Wilson as a a symbolic vote because they just were dissatisfied with all the other candidates. They didn't know Brandon Johnson at the time. Um, I I, I doubt if it was one-on-one between Brandon Johnson and Willie Wilson, Willie Wilson would have gotten that same vote, Uh, you know, because it would have been a very sharp debate on where the city is going and the ideologies of the two candidates would have come into force. Uh, But, I don't know, That's uh, we will never uh, uh, know that, uh, but uh, I remain hopeful nonetheless about what's going on in Tennessee while remaining perplexed uh, about the cluelessness of the Republican Party. All I right, Rachel, want, go right. ahead, go so ahead. For so
2: lefties, um, there does seem to be a lot to be excited about. So both like the progressive leaders and also like we're seeing, um, more unions or more interest in people joining unions. We're seeing salting like take place, which is where people join companies with the express purpose of unionizing them. Um, I, I do think that there is stuff for progressives to be excited about. And I, I do think that we're seeing a greater interest, especially among younger people, um, a, a greater interest in progressive policies and ideologies. So.
1: I'm with you. I mean, all down. I, I, uh, I think, and I'm going to give, close this week uh, with a shout out uh, to my old friend, Karen Lewis, the world that Karen Lewis uh, the way, let me say this, the way I want to say this, when she was elected in 2010 as the uh, head of the Chicago teachers union, it was a different world politically speaking than where we are now. And I believe that Karen Lewis set off uh, so much enthusiasm in unions. I'm looking at it right now, Rachel, like we we began with Greg Pratt. Greg Pratt is also the leader or one of the leaders of the Chicago Tribune Journalists Union, and the notion that the Tribune would have a union, and not only just any—I mean—they're a kick-ass union, you know—and uh, very impressed uh, about how they stand up for their rights. And it's just across the board. Museum of Science and Industry is unionizing. The Field Museum is industrializing. Starbucks is unionizing. The Graduate,
2: S- yeah, S A I C. University of Chicago I, I I don't know if they're done with a unionizing push they might be um yeah uh, northeastern is on strike northeastern University I want to say is on strike or is about to vote to authorize a strike so you know it's a lot of union activity out there which yeah protecting workers
1: and I uh, I do believe that's a, a, def, a direct a byproduct of the uh, efforts that the uh, Karen Lewis made back nearly part of this decade uh, just showing folks hey you know you, there's power and a collective force you might want to use it before I let you go. Uh, why don't you do a little promotion? Tell folks uh, any articles you want to alert them to the good work that uh, uh, that you're up to. And so the floor is yours.
2: Yeah. So I'm I'm still at Illinois Answers Project. Um, we are doing an award show, not actually an award show uh, next month called the Driehaus Awards. It's. I believe we're still accepting submissions for that. It's free to enter. You could win prizes up to like ten thousand dollars for stories from both large and small newsrooms. Yeah, and if if I'm wrong on the submission date for that, you can still uh, join us. I want to say at City Hall, the not not actually City Hall, but the restaurant City Hall, in May at some point.
1: All right. Very good, Rachel Hinton. Uh, good good job as always. Appreciate you coming on the show. All right.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: All right. That's Rachel Hinton. I'm uh, Ben Jarofsky. also want to thank producer Chris. Outstanding job as he always does. And uh, I think Rachel will agree with me when I say give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Have a great weekend,
0: everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more at chicagoreader.com. And if you want to help the show, make sure you like and follow the Ben Jarofsky show on social media and your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.